Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. It's Palm Sunday. Most often when we think of this day, we think of the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. In fact, the day is actually named after that. You know, when I was, uh, was raised Catholic, and one of the things that I remember from growing up is on Palm Sunday, we would actually uh, be given palm branches. I don't know where they found those in Wisconsin. But we would be given palm branches to take home. You remember they would, at this time when Jesus came into Jerusalem, they were waving the palm branches and shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And so that's what we're here this morning to celebrate. We're going to look at three things. There were three events. Again, the one we think of most often on Palm Sunday is Jesus riding in on a donkey to Jerusalem. That's the first event. But there were two others, other, other events that are closely related to this. At least one of them happens on the same day. The other one, there's some question of whether it happened on exactly the same day or the very next day. But the first one happened as Jesus approached the city. And Dustin already alluded to that. I was going to have a quiz this morning and ask you, what was the second event that happened on that same day? And he's already alluded to it. As Jesus approached the city... Luke tells us that he began to weep. And we're going to get into that this morning. But there's actually another event, a third one, that's also related to this. Does anybody know what that one was? I won't stress you too much. Not pass or fail. Um, Jesus actually cleansed the temple for the second time. Now, it's clear that the triumphal entry and the weeping happen on the same day because Luke describes it as he's approaching the city, he begins to weep. There's some question as to whether or not the cleansing of the temple, when that happened. If you, and we won't turn there, but if we look at Matthew and Luke's accounts, he doesn't give any time changes. He simply says that Jesus went into the city, he wept as he got there, and he went in and cleansed the temple. It doesn't give any indication that a day had changed. The problem is that Mark records the event a little differently, and Mark's account can be read to suggest that Jesus went to the city, he went into the temple, looked around, and then left went to Bethany that night, and then turned around and came back the next morning, and that's when the cleansing of the temple took place. Um, Now, we know that the scripture is true anyway we look at it, and so what do we do with those two different accounts, or three different accounts? There are ways to harmonize those three accounts. If you think about Matthew and Luke's accounts, simply because he doesn't mention a day intervening doesn't mean a day did not intervene. We know that Jesus stayed in Bethany during that week, and he would spend his nights in Bethany and go back into the city during the day, and so that's possible. The other thing is, when you look at Mark's account, it doesn't specifically say that another day took place. The impression, as you read the text, could be because he doesn't record the cleansing of the temple until after he mentions Jesus going to Bethany. And it doesn't say he only went into the temple and looked around. It's possible that he went in and looked around the temple and did some other things, like cleansing it as well. And Mark, we know, didn't record things in the exact order they happened. Mark arranges them more, uh, more thematically. So I know it's a little confusing to you right now, but my conviction as I look at this is that it likely happened on the same day and that they were closely related to all three, or all three of those are closely related to what Jesus was attempting to accomplish on that visit. There's one central theme to all three of these events, and you'll see that, I hope, as we go through the text today. The central theme is that Jesus was going into Jerusalem to present himself as Israel's messianic king. And you're going to hear me repeat that phrase, messianic king. Those two go together. And so Jesus not only arrived at Jerusalem with this triumphal entry as a way of 
presenting himself as their king. But even the weeping reveals him as their messianic king. And I believe the cleansing of the temple and the events that surround the cleansing of the temple were designed to reveal him as their messianic king as well. Let's go ahead and look at the first of those. Jesus revealed himself as Israel's messianic king by his triumphal entry. We're going to find that in Luke chapter 19. So I'm going to read a chunk of verses here. We're starting in Luke chapter 19, verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 28. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you and enter. You will find a colt tied which no one has ever sat on. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you, any, or why are you untying it? Say to them, the Lord has needed it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And they were untying the colt. Its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has needed it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And he was go- or as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I will tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. That's referred to as a triumphal entry. In Matthew's Gospel account, it's recorded as a direct fulfillment of a prophecy by Zechariah. Now there's two parts to Zechariah's prophecy. The first one comes in chapter 9, verse 9. We'll get to that in a moment. The second one happens in just one verse later, which is verse 10 of that. And so, really the first part of that is Jesus coming into the city and how he's going to arrive. And there's a description that Zechariah gives of this king. The second part of Zechariah's prophecy was Jesus' second return to Jerusalem, where he defeats the enemies of the Lord and Israel, and he ushers in a time of peace, which we know to be the thousand-year reign of Christ. So I'm going to have you turn to Zechariah right now. Zechariah, chapter 9. We're going to look at this, and we're going to kind of break this down. Now, one of the neat things about the book of Zechariah, if you've never studied it before, is it is highly messianic. What I mean by that is, there are at least 16 references in Zechariah, a fairly short book, 16 references, prophecies given about the messianic king, the descendant of David. This is one of them. But again, as you go through the book, it covers everything from his humanity to his rejection to his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. It talks about his kingship, his reign, his glory, and ultimately the enduring peace that this king would bring to Israel. And so Zechariah is, is a book filled with prophecies regarding the Messiah. And Matthew actually quotes one of them. We won't turn to Matthew's account right now, but Matthew quotes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Let's go ahead and read that. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I want to look at a few of these. The first thing that Zechariah tells us is that this king, as he comes, would be just. About halfway down through verse 9, it says he is just. It could also be translated as righteous. It means somebody who confirms God's ethical and moral standards and lives by them. The psalmist actually 
said of God, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all of his works. That's the same word here. So what Zechariah tells us is that Israel's coming king would be righteous and just. He would be just like God the Father. Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 5 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And so that's the first thing that Zechariah reveals in his prophecy, that when this king comes, he will be just. He will be a righteous king. second thing he says there is he would be endowed with salvation. Now there's primarily three different translations for this phrase in the English Bibles. The first two are very, very similar. They're in the NIV and the New American Standard. And they read either as he is endowed with salvation or he is having salvation. So that's two of the primary translations. Now there's a different translation used by some of the other Bibles, and I think it's important for us to touch on this. If you have... um, different version of the Bible, it might say something like, he is victorious. The NIV, the New American Standard, the New English Translation, and some others, instead of saying he's endowed or salvation, use the phrase, he is victorious. Well, those seem like two rather different things, don't they? And the question is why? Well, the reason is that the word that's used there is simply the word for deliverance, or to deliver. And the context has to sort of determine if this means he is coming to bring salvation or deliverance, or he himself is deliverance, or has risen above persecution and been delivered himself. And there's debate. I've scoured through a number of commentaries by language experts, and they couldn't seem to agree which was the more appropriate translation based on the context. Because technically, if you just do a technical translation, either one of those translations are appropriate. I believe, however, that when you bring in other passages of Scripture that the first of those two, the one that I read to you here, that he is endowed with salvation or he is bringing salvation with him, is probably the more accurate rendering of that verse. Especially when you consider things like Isaiah chapter 62, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Throughout the Old Testament, and even as we get into the New Testament, Jesus Christ brings salvation. In fact, his coming to Israel was a promise of bringing salvation to Israel in a physical sense and bringing salvation to people in a spiritual sense. And so I believe that the New American Standard translation here is probably a a more accurate rendering of that, that he was endowed with salvation, and certainly know that to be true of Christ. Not just as he arose in Jerusalem, but what he brought to all of mankind. In fact, his very name, Jesus, means Yahweh saves. The third thing that Zechariah tells us here is that he would be humble. Your translation may say that he was lowly. You find that near the end of verse 9 there. It has a range of meanings. The word can mean everything from poor, afflicted, humble, meek, gentle. It's another Hebrew word that's packed full of meaning. But the overriding sense of that word is that he would be a humble individual. It describes someone who's gentle and humble in spirit. With very few exceptions, um, this is the direct opposite of most kings. This is what's striking about this. If you understand the the, um, history of the kings in Israel, most of them were not good people. Most of them were not humble. They were arrogant. They were proud. They were rude. They were rebellious. Many of them were apostate. So this is 
a prophecy that says this king will be very different than most kings. In fact, it was radically different than any other earthly king. The pagan kings were even worse than the Israelite kings. In fact, we even see in the New Testament um, how Nero, which is essentially a king, and others, wicked, brutal. And so what Zechariah is describing here is that this king would be a humble king, unlike all others. And again, that's with rare exception. You have David and some others. There's basically six kings in the list of Israel's kings that we would consider to be good kings. The rest were horrible, wicked individuals. Jesus actually said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and I am humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. You know, that's a strange comment because generally you didn't find rest under an oppressive king. You found quite the opposite. And so Jesus himself even reflected what Zechariah was saying. He will be a humble king. And Jesus said, I am a humble and gentle king. You'll find rest under me. Probably the greatest expression of this humility is a passage you're familiar with, Philippians chapter 2, when Jesus took on human flesh. Chapter 2, verse 8 of Philippians says, He was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, upon a cross. So Jesus himself was this expression of this humble, gracious king. The last thing he says here is that Israel's king would arrive in a specific way. Notice he says that he would arrive mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Zechariah comes right down to say, you'll, you'll know it's him when you see him riding into Jerusalem, not just on a donkey, but a young donkey that's never been ridden before. Why a donkey? Anybody have any idea? Why, why a donkey? Well, funny looking big ears or whatever, you know, and don't look all that comfortable. You see, kings rode on horses. Horses at this time were a symbol of authority and power and strength, and the military commanders would ride the horses. I don't know if you saw recently the, the trucker convoy stuff up in um, Canada, but there was a, a video that had circulated where they were, uh, they were on horses' mounts and they had trampled one of the protesters. I don't believe it was deliberate, but you know, you, you put somebody on a horse and they've got a lot of authority and control over crowds and other things and so they would use horses in battle. Jesus didn't ride in on a horse. As this proud king with power and authority, he came on a donkey, as you might expect a humble, gentle king would do. And so even during this day, in Jesus' day, donkeys were actually a symbol of peace, which is also symbolic of this, because Jesus, Zechariah will tell us in a bit here, that he would bring peace to Israel. And donkeys were seen as animals of peace. They were symbols of peace. If you look at verse 10, what Zechariah tells us, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, meaning wiping out the army, and the horse from Jerusalem, he'll wipe out the army, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So what Zechariah prophesies in these two verses is that your king is coming. He's going to be humble. He's going to be gracious. He's going to be riding on a donkey. He'll be coming in, but he's ultimately going to bring peace, not just to Israel, but from sea to sea. That's your king. And when Matthew prefaces the triumphal entry, he quotes from Zechariah saying, this is a fulfillment of what the Old Testament said would happen. And so the significance of the triumphal entry is that it revealed Jesus as the very one that Zechariah prophesied, the Messiah King from the Old Testament. 
the son of David, the descendant of David that would ultimately take his earthly throne. Now, it's often suggested that as Jesus was coming into the city, that it was the whole city that came out to greet him, and it's, it's all the hoopla and stuff, and as they get into the city, the city's going nuts, and just a week later, all those same people turn around, and they call to crucify him. It's not really true. It's not what happened. Go back to Luke. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. I want you to jump down to verse 37. Do you notice who it says was accompanying Jesus down to Jerusalem? As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd, what? Of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice. All the miracles which they had seen. I want you to jump down to verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke you. Rebuke who? Says Rebuke your disciples. These were Jesus' disciples that were accompanying him down to Jerusalem. They expected Messiah to come. That's why they are able to say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because they understood. They had been under the tutelage and teaching of Jesus for almost three and a half years at this point. And so those were the ones that were going out, riding him down or walking along, praising him, waving the palm branches, throwing their cloaks down as he was approaching the city. It was his disciples, his followers. It wasn't... The crowd from the city who were going about their daily business. Jesus' followers accompanied him down. Those that had rejected him a week later were those that were in the city, not those who had followed him down. So Jesus was followed by his followers down into the city. If you look back at verse 19, verse 38, they were able to shout, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, or peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They expected him to take his throne. They recognized him as the promised Messiah, king of the Old Testament. They were ready to have him sit and do that. Now, we know that their perception was a little bit off, meaning their hope and desire was that he would conquer Rome, take over Rome, but that wasn't ultimately his plan. We'll see that in a little bit. You notice what happens when the Pharisees tell him to tell your disciples to hush. Jesus says, I tell you that if these become silent, the stones will cry out. What would the stones cry out? I suspect this is your king. This is the promised seed of David. And so the first thing we see in this is that the triumphal entry, Jesus was presenting himself as the promised seed of David, the one who would take on David's throne, but more than that, as the one that would bring peace and salvation to Israel and ultimately see to see the rest of the world. So that's the first thing we see here. Second thing we're going to see here is that Jesus does something else as he approaches the temple, and even within that, I believe that we see him serving in that role as king. If you look at Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, it says, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it. And look at what he says. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. There's only two times in the Bible where it records Jesus weeping. I would imagine he probably wept more than that. But there's only two times where it's recorded that he did. The first one is in John 11, 11, when he wept at Lazarus's passing before he was able to raise him back up to life. The second is here as he approaches Jerusalem. 
The question is, what ultimately motivated Jesus to tears? We find out the very last phrase of verse 44 reveals to us why Jesus was so moved and what led him to tears. Look at what it says. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Remember, he's, he's being welcomed down to Israel, or down to Jerusalem. His disciples, his followers, which according to other places in the Bible, probably amounted to at least 500 people. They're following him down. They understand what's going on. They recognize him as their Messiah, as their king. But as he's approaching Jerusalem, the city's going about their business. They're just doing their thing, getting ready for Passover. But Jesus basically says, you don't recognize the time of your visitation. You don't recognize who it is standing right outside the gates of your city. And so he weeps because they didn't recognize him. There's something else that happens a little bit later, but it gives us an idea of what was going through Jesus' mind. If you look at Matthew chapter 23... Matthew chapter 23, look at verses 37 and following with me. Jerusalem, this is, this is Jesus, it says, lamenting over Jerusalem, and he's doing it publicly. It doesn't say that he cried here, but oftentimes with lamenting, it was a very emotional thing, and there were tears to go along with it. But Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and yet you are unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a reference to his second coming. Jesus knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's going to be put to death. He knows he's going to rise from the dead and return to his father for a period of time. And he says, Jerusalem, and as he laments, as he weeps over Jerusalem, he's saying, you didn't recognize your Messiah. And because of that, you won't see me again until you are ready to recognize me. And you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a reference to Jesus as king. And so we see him lamenting over Jerusalem as well, crying, weeping. Well, the reason I believe that these things represent Jesus as king is partly because of what we would expect of a king. The way that Zechariah describes this king as humble and gentle, bringing salvation to his people. You see Jesus saying, I wanted to gather my arms around you. I wanted to raise you up. He recognizes them as his people that are in his care and in his concern. What might we expect of a worldly king when his subjects don't recognize him? What's that? Yeah. Brutal. Suppression. Jesus doesn't behave that way. He doesn't get angry at Jerusalem. doesn't threaten them like the Romans did. The Romans held a tight rein on their citizens and on those in their kingdom. If you stepped out of line, it wasn't tolerated. But when Jesus approaches Jerusalem, knowing full well that they are going to reject him and put him on a cross and crucify him, he weeps just as you would expect a humble, gracious king to do when his subjects don't recognize him. He knew that he was their only hope. He knew that he was their means of salvation. He knew that their only opportunity for peace would come when they recognize him and accept him as the promised seed of David, this messianic king. And when he didn't, he lamented and he wept, just as you would expect a good king to do. The last thing I want to just look at here is the cleansing of the temple and how that relates to all this. Look at Luke chapter 19, verses 45 to 48. Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were selling. 
saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayers, but you have turned it into a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on every word that he said. One of the first problems that Jesus had with the market or with the temple here was that they had turned it into a marketplace. I want you to turn to John chapter two. John chapter two, verse sixteen. We'll actually back up a little bit. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves he said, take these things away, stop making my father's house a place of business. When you entered the temple... The outer courts were filled at this time with money changers and vendors selling things. The money changers were there to exchange Roman coins for these Jewish tokens that could be used because the Jews would not allow Roman coins to be used at the temple because they contained the image of the emperor and they saw that as a graven image and idolatry. So to get around that, since the economy was Roman, they provided the financing or the coins, they would make their own coins to use within the temple and so you would have to go into a money changer and they would exchange your Roman coins for these Jewish tokens to use to make your purchases if you needed to. The vendors were there to actually sell animals for sacrifices. You can imagine people from all over Israel would come. It's hard to travel with your sheep and your doves and those things that you need for sacrifices so the vendors were there to sell you the doves and the goats and the sheep that you might need for your sacrifices. So you would come there, you would take your, your Roman coins, you would go to the money changers first, they would change that out for you, and then you would go over and you would purchase your doves or your sacrificial animals from the vendors. And so this was all happening within these inner court, or the courts surrounding the temple. Probably in what was called the temple or the, the court of the Gentiles. Now, neither one of these things were necessarily evil, meaning exchanging your Roman coin for Jewish tokens wasn't evil or wicked, and buying animals for sacrifice was not evil or wicked. But if you look at what happens, or the second thing that Jesus says about what was happening, kind of gives an idea of what was going on. Look at Luke chapter 19, verse 46 again. Got a lot of page turning this morning. But look at uh, 19, verse 46 again in Luke. It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it what? A den of robbers. It wasn't that they were exchanging coins. It wasn't that they were selling oxen. Jesus didn't have a problem with that per se. He just said it shouldn't be taking place outside the temple. It shouldn't be happening in here. This is not a place of business. This is a house of prayer. You come here to worship the Lord. You don't come here to buy and sell. and do. Take that stuff outside. That was one problem. But the other problem was that even while they were doing that, there was theft. There was corruption. We know this because what would happen actually was when you would go exchange these, these Roman coins for Jewish tokens, you didn't get your money's worth. They would skim off the top. So instead of getting you know, a dollar coin of Roman and giving, or turning in that dollar coin for Roman money and getting a dollar coin of, of the Jewish token, maybe you got 75 cents. Maybe you got 50 cents. You know, we traveled to, to um, Canada years ago and took my American money with me. And if you went somewhere, you could use that, but it would cost you more. And so if you exchange that into Canadian coinage, then you could save a little bit of money over there. But you got an even exchange. Whatever the exchange rate was, you got that. It would have been very different if they would have said, yeah, 
uh, your American dollar would be a dollar twenty in Canadian coins, but we're also going to charge you fifty cents for every dollar. So you know, you turn in your buck and you get twenty cents by the time you're done. That's what they were doing. They were turning into the scheme of making money. They were robbers. They were thieves. But not only that, history tells us that the prices they would charge for animals was outrageous. They got you over a barrel. We know you came here and you've got sacrifices to make. You couldn't bring your animals with you. And yeah, we could sell you a dog or an ox. We could charge you a premium because we got you. And so Jesus had a problem with this because first and foremost, they turned the temple into a place of business, but also because of the corruption, the wickedness. I get myself in trouble here. I've been watching the different advertisements and postcards and other things that churches are sending out for Easter right now. Websites and other things. And it's disheartening to see how many of them are advertising things like bounce houses and other things for Easter. Very little mention of Christ. Very little mention of the resurrection. Now, maybe that happens once they get you there, but as a gentleman I was talking to yesterday said, yeah, it's sort of like, well, we'll just slip it in once we got you there. But I've been disheartened by some of what I've been seeing where um, it's, it's almost like a fun house. It's almost like fun and games. And, you know, I don't want to slam churches too hard for trying to get people to come. But I, I just, I don't appreciate when I see the Lord's people coming together and instead of focusing on the resurrection or on Christ, we sort of turn it into something other than that, an entertainment venue. It sends the wrong message. I don't think the Lord would be happy with that. I had a gentleman mention to me the other day the name of a church up close to Delaware. He said, even that name seems to give the wrong impression as to what church is really supposed to be about. And I kind of chuckled and I said, well, I'm not going to get any people in the door if you say, come to Suffering Church. But you call it Fun Church or any number of other church names. It sounds fun and enlightening and we'll all come, but it doesn't really communicate the right message. And so Jesus had a problem. The temple was supposed to be a place of worship, a place of prayer. They had turned it into a business enterprise and there was corruption in that. So Jesus goes in and he turns these tables over. He runs them out of the temple. Now one of the themes inherent in the cleansing here is Jesus' role as priest. That's pretty clear. But there's some other things that I think are related that also reveal his kinship. Jesus' primary purpose in going into the temple during this week was to teach. And we're told here in Luke chapter 19, verse 47, that he did that on a daily basis. When Jesus went into the temple and cleansed it, the reason he was going into the temple was to teach. And he did that throughout the week. And it's while he's there teaching that this cleansing actually takes place. Look at Luke chapter 20, verse 1. It says, On one of the days, while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. Jesus was going into the temple during this week on a daily basis, and we're told here, preaching the gospel. Now, you have to back up a little bit. We think of the gospel, we think just the four spiritual laws, but it literally just means the good news, which incorporates more than just... Jesus died for your sins. The good news that Jesus preached, at least as you look into the New Testament and you look at it from a what's called a bird bird's eye view, was that there's good news. The good news is that Messiah has come. The Messiah has come as the descendant of David. He's brought salvation. He's brought peace, both in an earthly sense, but also in a spiritual sense. That's the good news that God has fulfilled His promise that we see throughout the whole entire Old Testament. And so Jesus is in the temple sharing this good news. 
Do you think he was just talking only about, oh, I'm going to die for your sins and you can go to heaven eternally? No. It would have involved, I'm the Messiah. I'm the promised seed of David. That's the good news. I've finally come, just as Zechariah prophesied, just as Isaiah prophesied, just as Jeremiah and all the prophets before them preached that I would come and the good news is that I am here now. Part of the reason I believe that is because of what happens elsewhere. His pattern was actually to go in, we see that in all four of the Gospels, his pattern was to go into the temple and to teach and preach the good news that Messiah had come. I find it interesting. I shared this with Dustin the other day when I called him on this. It's really interesting that this phrase, King of the Jews, that is used in the Gospels, appears 22 times in the Gospels. All but one of them appear in just the last week. Why the emphasis on King of the Jews during this last week primarily? Again, this phrase, King of the Jews, only appears one time outside of this final week. It doesn't mean that it wasn't used. It's just that the Gospel writers don't record that. But they record it a lot during this final week of Jesus' life. Pilate questioned Jesus and said, basically, are you the king of the Jews? Matthew chapter 27. The guards mocked Jesus, covering a purple robe, pounding a crown of thorns on his head. They started saluting him and saying, Hail to the Jews! Hail to the king of the Jews! Hail to the king of the Jews! So Pilate was aware of it. The soldiers were aware of it. The soldiers that crucified him basically said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself! Pilate, when he hung the sign above Jesus' head, remember what it said? King of the Jews, and the Jews got all upset. No, 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 he said he was the king of the Jews. Did you catch that? He said he was king of the... Where did Jesus say he was the king of the Jews? All week long, in the temple, as Jesus preached the gospel, the good news, your king is here. Your king has arisen. Or your king has arrived. I think that's why the gospel writers repeat this phrase over and over and over in that last week in their recording of what happened. Because that's what the week was about. So as Jesus came down the triumphal entry, it was about him presenting himself as the king. He wept, just as you would expect the king to weep, when he saw that they were rejecting what he offered. And as he goes in to teach in the temple, he was there to teach in the temple that he was the king of the Jews. That was the good news. Now there's other evidence that that's exactly what he did. If you look at Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. I won't go through this in great depth. But if you look at chapter 22, Jesus is teaching, and this is the week, his final week here. He teaches a bunch of these parables. He teaches the parable of the marriage feast. And if you notice, the main character in that parable of the feast is who? It's a king who ultimately throws a, a wedding party for his son, a wedding feast, and the people that are supposed to be there, in this case it represents the Jews, don't show up. And so Jesus uses this example of this king and his response to being rejected by his people. So you get the symbolism of the king there. That was one of the things Jesus taught. Do you suppose Jesus, as he taught this in the temple, was hinting, using it as a parable, he was the king, ultimately. Now, some would argue he was the son in this case, and the king was God the Father. That may very well be the case, but the fact is that he uses this example of a king. If you jump down to chapter 22, verse 42, 
what do you think about the Christ? Who is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? What Jesus is doing here is he's talking to the crowds here, as he's talking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, is he's basically saying, I'm the descendant. I'm the son of David. That was the king. David's descendant would be the king. And Jesus is here in the temple explaining to the the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, David wasn't talking about a literal son. He was talking about a descendant. I'm that descendant. I'm the king. I'm the descendant of David that will take his throne for all eternity. Chapter 23. I believe it's uh, verse 39. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a reference in the Old Testament related to the coming messianic king. And Jesus says out loud while he's lamenting so others can see and hear, you will not see me again until you are willing to accept, you are willing to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which we know would be at Christ's second return. I won't do this, but chapter 21 through chapter 25, we see this same general concept repeated. When Jesus was teaching in the temple, he was revealing himself as the Messianic king. Now, what I find really interesting about this is, look at the way the children respond. The same time that Jesus cleanses the temple, we see this. Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 17. This is the cleansing of the temple from Matthew's viewpoint. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now remember, Jesus was here to teach. He was doing this daily on his first day into the temple. He's there to teach, and he doesn't like what he sees going on with the money changers. He overturns their tables. Verse 13, And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, look at what happens here. And the children who were shouting in the temple, what are they shouting? Hosanna to the son of David. That is a reference to the Davidic messianic king. Hosanna to the son of David. Then they became indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. I just, I find it interesting. And here Jesus is on that very first day. He's in the temple teaching. We know that he's teaching the gospel. But he goes and he cleanses the temple on that very same day. That very first day, the children already in that temple are referring to him as a descendant of David, the Messianic king. Where did they get that from? Because Jesus was teaching it in the temple. So it isn't necessarily that the cleansing itself revealed Jesus as king. That was one act. It was him going into the temple and his reason for being there in the temple and what he did all week long. And so it's interesting as we think about this week that we're in right now, starting with today. Jesus' point in going to Jerusalem was ultimately to do two things. One was to reveal himself as king. We see that in the triumphal entry, fulfilling the promises of Zechariah. We see it as he gets to Jerusalem and he weeps because his people reject him and don't recognize the time of their visitation. But then we see it when he goes into the temple for the course of the week to preach the good news. God has made good on his promise to send Messiah, and that's me. That was the first purpose. The second purpose was ultimately to face the cross, to die in our place, to rise from the dead, and ultimately offer us the gift of life. 
Those are the two primary purposes Jesus went to Jerusalem. We cover one today, which is presenting himself as the Messiah. We'll cover the next, the other one, when Dustin preaches on Easter. It's interesting as I look at some of this stuff. It might sound like a tragedy in some respects, you know? Jesus showing up, weeping over Jerusalem because he didn't recognize who he was. But you notice he says, you will at some point because you'll see me again and you'll say, blessed be son of David. We know that to be his second coming. They won't ignore him then. They might not all accept him. But what the scriptures tell us is that Jesus will come again. So this event today is a foreshadowing, ultimately, of Christ's ultimate return when he will usher in peace for Israel. He will serve as their king. He will take his throne in Jerusalem. They will ultimately praise him as the son of David. So it's a foreshadowing of what is to come, which for us gives us hope. And so we have two things to be hopeful for here, two things to rejoice over. One is that ultimately Christ secured salvation for us on the cross, and we'll celebrate that at Easter time. But the second, as a foreshadowing of what's to come, we now look forward to the return of Jesus where he will officially take over his throne. And then for a thousand years, a thousand years of peace and celebration, Israel's promise is fulfilled in that. We get to look forward to that too. And as believers, we're told that we will then get to reign with him. It's a pretty amazing thing when you think about it. But today, again, is all about Jesus Christ being the messianic king that God promised. And even though Israel didn't recognize it, he still is who he claims to be. And he will ultimately fulfill that in front of all of Israel and all of the world. Amen?